The future may not be clear, but our commitment is. So when you sit with an advisor at Merrill Lynch, we'll put your interests first. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the show, what a delight. I don't even know how to begin to explain this. Uh, Bill Sharp, just a legend in finance. Couldn't have been more charming and, and more delightful. There was a lot of back and forth in terms of when are you guys going to be on the West Coast? I'm here, I'm there, I'm busy week. And he, he no longer keeps an office at Stanford and... He didn't want to come into San Francisco. He lives down in Carmel. And the guys in Andreessen Horowitz were nice enough to give me a, a, a podcasting room to sit in and record the show. I can't begin to tell you what a delight it was to chat with him. He's just beyond knowledgeable. He really helped. You know, the original concept of this show is speaking to the minds who help shape finance and investing in business and who who better than bill sharp so many of the principles that we just accept as as run-of-the-mill ordinary things in finance bill sharp helped to create he helped to create the first index fund he helped to create the capital asset pricing model he helped to create our understanding of risk just stop and think about those achievements we we talked about a number of really fascinating things, and I can't begin to tell you how just delightful it is. So my job was to kind of get out of his way and just keep nudging him in, in, into expounding more and more. Uh, some of the stuff is a little wonky. It's not your usual market-based conversation because he's the guy who built the underlying infrastructure. Suffice it to say, it's absolutely fascinating. So with no further ado, my conversation with Nobel Laureate, William Sharp. Professor Bill Sharp, welcome to Bloomberg, hosted here at Andreessen Horowitz. Your dissertation was called The Single Index Model. Tell us what that was about. Okay, it'll be a, won't be the shortest possible answer, but it'll it's be fine. a lot shorter than the dissertation. The uh, <laughs> Harry Markowitz's work was what we would call normative in the sense that he was asking the question, you're a portfolio manager, there are securities, there's a client, how do you build a portfolio that's good for the client? Mm -hmm. And in his structure, he allowed for not only estimates of the expected return on General Motors, let's say, mm -hmm. the risk of General Motors stock, but also the extent to which General Motors would move with Ford with General Foods, et cetera, a whole lot of so numbers. So how correlated it was with Precisely. the rest of the market. So a whole lot of numbers, and he had a procedure to find a so-called set of efficient portfolios mm -hmm. given that set of numbers, and it took a big computer a lot of time, a lot of money to do it. Um, he also, in his, in his work, had suggested you might simplify the relationships among securities and he proposed a number of, of versions, one of which was, well, you could say General Motors moved with the market to a certain extent. General Foods moved with the market to a certain extent. Each of them had movements on their own and leave it at that. In other words, a very simple model 
uh, in which there was one single index, let's call it the market for, for now, uh, which created all the correlation, all the co-movement among securities. So, so he essentially, before we talked about beta, he had to come up with the concept of well, Here's this, what the market actually well, is. Well, and, and, and I, I hope I'm recalling correctly. In his version, this was just, oh, you might want to make this simple assumption. Mm-hmm. And then there were a couple of other authors that were writing with that same kind of structure. But there was no sense this would be the market portfolio. It was just mm-hmm. a thing, a single index. Right. But, but, so, I, so what I did was I, I took that concept and I did three things in the dissertation. One was I, I wrote a, a computer algorithm that could take advantage of that simplified structure mm-hmm. and find efficient portfolios you know, for orders of magnitude less computer time than if you expanded it to the full structure. Mm-hmm. So the first part of the dissertation was an algorithm and a Fortran program, probably the first pro- dissertation in economics at UCLA that included programs. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. The second, I, uh, Fred Weston had a friend who was an investment advisor, uh-huh. a real human investment advisor. And so I worked with him to try to get him to make probabilistic forecasts for a bro- group of securities. Mm-hmm. And then we ran them through the algorithm to see what it implied. And then the third, I, I did what my training as a microeconomist, which is was most of my training, uh, would cause me to do. What if everybody did this? What if everybody did what Harry said? What would the world look like? So Harry's portfolio theorem would basically guide all the investors. That was my assumption. So I I turned from what should you do, normative, to how might the world work, positive Mm -hmm. theory, which is what economists that time in particular generally did, and said, well, if everybody did this, and markets cleared and prices adjusted, Mm -hmm. what would be the relationship in equilibrium between expected returns on securities and some measure of risk? And the conclusion was, and again, this was positing this single index model, Mm -hmm. conclusion was that the thing, the common factor that would matter would be the market portfolio. And that's when the term beta came to be and that expected returns would be related only to betas mm-hmm. um, in a linear manner for that matter. Were you aware at the time how innovative and groundbreaking and influential this idea would be going forward? Or was it, oh, I think I have a pretty nice dissertation uh, here? The latter. <laughs> the latter. And then I finished the dissertation in June and then started teaching the University of Washington in September. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'd written up the algorithm for a paper, and, uh, and I was saying, this is really a nifty result, this beta, you know, ex- mm-hmm. equilibrium result. But it's sort of like, okay, I pulled a rabbit out of a hat, but, but I put it in beforehand with this single index model assumption. And I, I said, boy, it would be nice if I could get that beautiful answer without making this assumption, which almost directly created the answer. Right. So I, I noodled around and talked to colleagues and um, thought of it, and then all of a sudden, within, you know, within two or three, four months, I said, wait a minute, I don't have to make that assumption. I can get that result in a general situation 
And at that point, that was the capital asset pricing model. Mm-hmm. And uh, I first wrote it up and submitted it for publication in 62. And it was rejected by a referee. And then How fantastic of, is that? Yeah. And, and uh, I finally published it in 64. It took you three years to get your paper on capital. Two plus, yeah. A- and that ultimately is what leads in 1990. That to, was what was cited in the Nobel Prize, yeah. Uh, isn't that fascinating that such an interesting, innovative idea rejected for a few years. Well, uh, you know, I, I happened to know, I found out who the referee was, and his argument was, well, that's an unrealistic assumption. And, <laughs> and I was taught by Milton Friedman indirectly and others that you don't evaluate a theory of that sort on the assumption. You evaluate it on the conformance of the results mm-hmm. with the real world because theories always make assumptions. Right. The, the, yeah. the, the thesis is we're going to start with these assumptions. Where does yeah. that lead to? And then how oh, does it that... leads us here. Isn't yeah. that interesting? Yeah, exactly. So um, so in any event, uh, and as a matter of fact, when it was finally published in the Journal of Finance, I, I, you know, I asked as far as the refereeing, I asked, well, could we have another referee, please? And then they changed editors and mm-hmm. such. But when it was published, I thought, well, this is the best thing I'm ever going to do. And in, in that, I was correct. <laughs> and um, and I, I sat by the phone. We didn't have computers in those right. days. No, no, no texts or emails Right, waiting up. for the phone to ring, and it didn't ring, and it didn't ring. And I thought, you know, months passed, and I thought, man, I've just written the best paper I'm ever going to write, and nobody cares. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, eventually, people started paying attention that, to that's it. A, that's a fascinating story. Uh, it's what, very di- it'd be very different now. Well, things seem to ricochet around the world nearly Much instantly, more rapidly. although I don't think people recognize the depth or the gravitas of certain ideas right away, but what are you thinking during that period where you know you've found something unique and, and valuable and nobody else is, is recognizing that yet? Well, um, needless to say, you have... Some, well, maybe it wasn't. I knew it was unique. Well, mm-hmm. there's some d- dispute about that, too. Mm-hmm. Others were, were going down similar paths in, in, in various ways. But, uh, but I thought it was valuable. And I, was, and I thought, well, if this isn't valuable, I, you, let me give you a little broader context. In those days, economics was theory and equilibrium and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. Finance was very old-timey. Mm-hmm. by any modern standards. And so I was one of the first economists that went into the field of finance, Fred Weston before me, sure. mm-hmm. to try to bring some of the rigor of economics to finance. And so there was a kind of a cultural issue as well. That's interesting. And uh, so, but the Journal of Finance had a, a number of, of I would call let's call them scientific articles. It was not unusual, but it it was it was a change for the field of finance, not only in practice but also in academics, which is you know there was no field called financial economics. Mm-hmm. Now there is. Um, how how influence was Harry Markowitz and your work with him at Rand on you eventually creating the capital asset pricing model? Well, obviously, if I hadn't read Harry's work, if I hadn't done the work in the first part of the dissertation, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have moved to 
go to the stage of asking the question, what if everybody did this? Mm -hmm. So in that sense, crucial. Um, it was interesting. Harry, two or three years later, said, oh, I just reread your paper, and now I see you didn't assume that. You actually derived it. <laughs> so, right. so uh, you know, I, I will say that that part, I think, was pretty much my work. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Although, as I say, others were beginning down a similar path. Jack Trainer, you know, he didn't publish, but he was going down. A, he came at it differently. Where, where was Jack Trainer? He was, well, he wasn't at Harvard. He, he was working, I think, as a student at Harvard. Mm -hmm. I believe he was at Arthur D. Little when he was doing that work. Mm -hmm. He came at it a different way, and um, I became aware of his work a year or two after I'd submitted mine for publication. So I, I put a footnote in saying, you know, here's this other work. You should be aware of. So in 1989, you become a professor emeritus and decide to spend some time consulting at William F. Sharp Associates. What sort of consulting work were you doing back then? Actually, that was when I finally bit the bullet and became an emeritus professor. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife and I started a research slash consulting firm in 86, which went through, and in 89, and I took leave, then I went back, and then I thought, no, I need to do it full time. Um, and so that lasted six years in different manifestations. Uh, what we were trying to do is bring I hate to call it modern finance theory. I hate that term, but mm -hmm. financial economics theory, you know, empirical work to bear on the problems faced by the manager of the General Motors Pension Fund, mm -hmm. the manager of the Stanford University Endowment. So professionals who were managing large pools of money in an institutional setting. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was bring to bear the research that existed and do new research and bring in new things that could help those folks. So, so th that was the target in terms of the problems. And so we set up this firm, and again, in various manifestations, and we worked with General Motors Pension Fund, Stanford Endowment, et cetera. Right. So a lot of really substantial institutions with a lot of money. What were the sort of problems that they were encountering in the real world that your theory helped resolve? Um, well, first, uh, what were the risks? Where were the risks? Uh -huh. What was the performance? How did it, you know, was it good or bad relative to the risks that we're taking? People really were not all that clued into risk-adjusted performance, or had well, at that point it was better understood? At one level, but not, for example, one of the things that came out of that was what's called returns-based style analysis. Mm -hmm. How do you get your hand, you've got this portfolio, you've got 100 different money right. managers out there. How do you get your arms around it? Who's doing what? How does this piece fit in with that piece? Uh, are you getting enough average returns out of this manager to justify being in the portfolio and being in at that level or less or more? Um, we take that for granted that you could today run a spreadsheet, crunch some numbers, and bang, you could figure that out. This was not this was, simple to do back this then. This was in the 1980s. So, mm -hmm. so for example, returns-based aisle analysis. And again, the idea was to get your arms around the whole multi-managed portfolio mm -hmm. and uh, uh, evaluate it as a whole, try to figure out whether or not you've got the right pieces and you've got them in the right magnitudes. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, are you adding value? 
Mm-hmm. So, so there are a number of problems, and uh, we got to deal with the real world, very sophisticated clients, and um, try out some new ideas, develop some new ideas. It was, it was, it was pretty heady. So you joined the Rand Corporation in 1956, and you meet Harry Markowitz, who ultimately helps you with your dissertation. Tell us about what it was worth, like working with uh, Markowitz on your PhD project. Well, let me, if I may, do a little more of the backstory. Because, sure. Uh, when I first went to Rand, out of, I came out of the service with a master's degree at, to Rand. And when I first went, uh, Harry was not there at that point. Um, and um, so I was working on logistics issues, uh, big models and, and computer programs and what have you. And I decided I wanted to teach, so I, the path of least resistance was to take some education courses, get a junior mm-hmm. college credential. Uh, I took one education course at night and decided, no, I'd rather get a Ph.D. and teach at the university level. So I was able to get a Ph.D. at UCLA while working full-time, supporting my family at RAND because they were very generous in that regard. Uh, I started a dissertation on a totally different subject transfer pricing, using a lot of operations research Mm -hmm. methodology. And when Jack Herschleifer, whose work I was building on, came to UCLA, uh, my advisor said, why don't you go talk to Jack? And I did, and Jack read my half dissertation and said, I don't don't think there's a dissertation here. That has to be a little frustrating, you're halfway through. That was, but I remember Jack's dead now, but telling him more than once that he did me a great favor <laughs> because then I went to Fred Weston, financial economist at UCLA, and said, what am I going to do? He said, well, you really like this work Harry Markowitz did. Harry has just come to Rand. Why don't you go talk to Harry? Mm-hmm. So I did, and I worked out an arrangement between Fred and Ar- Armin Alchin and at UCLA and Harry, who was not at UCLA, that I'd work with Harry so it was a so little he, more. He wasn't a professor at UCLA, he but he effectively acts as your PhD advisor. Well, it was a little more collegial mm-hmm. uh, because you know we were both working around together, mm-hmm. um, and he didn't have any authority. <laughs> but but yes, yeah. Basically, he and I chatted about this and that, and wanting to try that and and the rest and and so forth. So you, there are worse PhD thesis advisors than, oh, than Harry well, Markowitz. Listen. <laughs> Every day, I'm thankful that that worked out. Let, let's talk a little bit about Capham and and how how that has evolved over time. First, when you first introduced it, has your thinking evolved on that since, or is it still what it was when you first thought it up? No, it has evolved, and people are sometimes surprised with this. And let me, if I may, sure. take a little bit of time. Uh, the capital asset pricing model builds on Harry's view of the world, which is that you think about the world in terms of mean and variance, expected return and risk mm-hmm. variations. Mean variance. So analysis, he, here's what yeah. we here's what's average. Here's how much you can how much volatility around I, that I, is exactly what you should expect and and what you might not get despite your expectations. Precisely. And then what I did in my equilibrium model is say, well, what if everybody is thinks about the world that way, mm-hmm. and they come to market, and they trade with each other, and prices adjust, what would one expect to find? And not surprisingly, you find that securities in that world would be priced, so 
higher expected return goes with higher beta, which is a measure of how things move together. Mm-hmm. And it's related to, to this variance, mean variance structure. And, the, the, you know, the economical line is it's market risk that matters. That's what you get rewarded for. Mm-hmm. Other risk, you don't get paid for. And that's sort of the bottom line. Uh, about the time Harry was first working, Ken Arrow and Gerard Debreu independently developed what came to be known as state preference theory, mm-hmm. which basically is a model of prices in an equilibrium framework. And the basic idea there, to just make it overly simplified, is that you know how much would it cost you to buy a security that pays you a dollar three years from now if at that point the market is up 30%, mm-hmm. you know, give or take. What would that cost? And, and it'll, there's some number, present value of that. And then you just think of the world, there's a whole bunch of those. Right. And when you put that into a, a security market context, you again get the result that it's market risk that matters, but it may matter in a different way instead of a, in a certain kind of diagram Instead of a straight line, it may be a curve, just to Mm -hmm. widely oversimplify. And the great thing about that view is that it extends very beautifully to multi-periods. It's it's much more general. Mm -hmm. And so that approach, which now in PhD programs in finance often is called a pricing kernel, Mm -hmm. K-E-R-N-E-L, it has the same character. It has many of the same pragmatic results, but it's more general. And so that's what I use. I do not use the capital asset pricing model in my models, in my work, which surprises some people. So you're, you're using what is effectively the natural evolution of that? Well, that they happen to, to come, they sort of, the paths combined mm-hmm. in some sense with Jack Hirschleifer at UCLA and Mark Rubenstein is his student there. Um, but so in some sense, they're not sequential. But yes, I do. And I, I try to... Because I, this is taught, as I say, at the Ph.D. level. I think it ought to be taught at the MBA level and the undergraduate level. So in 2007, I published a book, the name of which I, I can't quite remember, uh, that came out of some lectures I gave at Princeton, uh, trying to make the case that, yes, you can teach undergraduates and MBA students this approach rather than mean variance slash CAPM. Although, again, as they say, qualitatively, they're not wildly different. So the 2007 book is called Investors in Markets, Portfolio Choices, Asset Prices, and Investment Advice, Assuming Amazon is Giving Me the Correct Information. Oh, okay. Amazon Never Fails. <laughs> so, so let's talk a little bit about that. Thank you. Um, uh, you know, we used to have memories, and now we have these devices with us, and it, I, it's like I've outsourced... I knew the name of that book, and I couldn't for the life of me re- recall it because it's just so easy to, to pull it up. Um, the 60, 1964 paper you, you discussed earlier, uh, Capital Asset Prices, A Theory of Market Equilibrium Under Conditions of Risk. I'm going to pull a quote from that that I think is really powerful. Diversification enables the investor to sca- escape all but the risk resulting from swings in economic activity this type of risk remains even in efficient combinations. That's very powerful. How, how did you come upon that? Because it's mm. not 
obvious or intuitive. Well, as I say, that uh, you know that statement <clears throat> really needs another sentence. <laughs> you know, okay, as, as wonderful, and I appreciate your finding it. <clears throat> the, uh, the the basic idea is that is the risk for which you're going to be rewarded. Mm-hmm. If you expose Meaning yourself, market risk. Yeah, if you expose yourself more dramatically to down markets, then in the long run, you should do better. Mm-hmm. In the short run, you can be wiped out, right. or at least widely injured. Um, so, so that's the basic notion. And in the single index model, that's assumed. In the more general capital asset pricing model, that's a conclusion. So, so the assumptions, and you, you discussed this earlier about how it was potentially problematic um, for some of the people who were refereeing your, your initial papers, uh, were the assumptions fairly straightforward in order to test the thesis, or did you have to go out on a ledge a little bit with, with some of your assumptions? Well, you know, uh, I mean, the, the models, either the dissertation or the subsequent one, you know, our models, you make some assumptions and then you do some some calculations and some operations, you get a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a, a test that is so crude, I don't even, you know, we don't remember how crude our data sets were. Right. I mean, I did a test in my dissertation. I used annual returns on 30 mutual funds. Mm-hmm. That was my database. And I had to put it on index cards and go to the library and write down all the numbers and use a hand, you know, a desk calculator. Mm-hmm. Um, so over the years, of course, we did more sophisticated tests, had better databases. And um, that said, even today with all that we have, uh, it's hard, you know, there's a lot of noise in what happens in security markets. Sure. So it's hard to find what might be at the core and a, a, a truth for the long term, let us say. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk a little bit about risk because you are certainly known for your work uh, beyond uh, capital asset pricing model on risk. What is the appropriate way to think about risk as an investor? Uh, well, let me give you an anecdote for, for that question. Uh, the first time I met Peter Bernstein, who is legendary, and I suspect many of your listeners know, love his writing, know absolutely. his work. No, he was a he was a sweetheart. First time I met him, we had lunch somewhere in New York, and um, he was then managing money for wealthy clients, and we were talking about risk and risk aversion and risk tolerance. And mm-hmm. and he said, "Well, do you know when I know what the true risk tolerance of a client is?" And I, being young and naive, said, "No." When Peter, he said, "Well, after the markets had a really bad day, and I get a call at two a.m. saying I can't take it, I can't take it," <laughs> from a guy who said, "Oh, I can take risk," right. I, you know, I, you know. <clears throat> so. So measuring risk, but I think for most human beings, risk is losing a lot of money in a mm-hmm. short period of time unexpectedly. And and then the question is, how do you, I mean, that's a little too amorphous to put in a nice rigorous mathematical model, mm-hmm. but presumably if you, t- if you take something that could go up or could go down, is more likely to go up than to go down, mm-hmm. then risk is a probability distribution and the wider it is, the more risk there is. And you can start using measures like variance or standard deviation to try to, try to simplify that. But um, it's, it's just 
But yes, the downside is what we worry about. We don't worry about upside risk. Up, upside That's risk okay. seems That's to okay. take care of itself. Yeah, but to, they very often go together. To, to Peter Bernstein's point, when we discuss risk tolerance, we think about it objectively, but in reality, what we're really asking people is, how do you feel about what just happened over the past month? And mm-hmm. it, it's, and I know there have been lots of studies about this. When the market is strong, people claim to have, oh, I have a very high risk tolerance. Exactly. And when the market's getting shellacked, it's like, listen, I can't lose any money. I have a very That's low right. risk tolerance. Yeah. Uh, it, it's amazing there's no objective way to self-measure ourselves, mm-hmm. but that seems to be the case. Yeah, this is, you know, strange you asked just yesterday. <clears throat> I spent an hour with a, a woman who she's actually the wife of a friend of mine in totally different context. And she's a financial advisor to in, individuals, generally young techie types. Mm-hmm. And her question was, your question, how do I, how do I talk about risk to my client, how do I estimate his or her tolerance for risk? And, you know, there are questionnaires and psychological this and that, and she's tried those too, and they're not very satisfying. No. It's, it's, it's very difficult. It's so colored by what just happened. Let, let me ask yes. you the same question differently, and this time I will invoke the Sharp Ratio. The Sharp Ratio treats upside volatility equal to downside volatility, but as you just point out, they're really not equal. We're, we're much more concerned about downside volatility and downside deviation. Um, uh, is, is downside deviation a better metric than, than standard volatility? How should we really conceptualize this? Well, let me go back in, in Harry's early work. He had a section, I think it was in the book, uh, saying, well, maybe we ought to use he focused on what's called semi-variance. Mm-hmm. Variance is risk squared, let's call it, mm-hmm. up and down. Semi-variance is a measure of the downside. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, very, you know, it takes all the possible downsides and weights them and squares them and such. Uh, and, and people have come up. I think Frank Sertino has a ratio, which or had at one point, that uses downside. Uh, and yes, I mean, there's no doubt about it, and certainly the behavioral literature tells us that, that people weight downside much more heavily than they weight upside. So, so that all is very appealing and attractive. It's extremely difficult to build equilibrium models because the mathematics gets really squirrely. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've tried and failed. Others have tried and perhaps failed as well. But <laughs> the, uh, but in many cases, the distribution, if you want to think of it that way, is symmetric enough. So if you measure the square deviation from the mean, which is standard deviation, or, or really that's variance, um, or you measure the square deviation on the downside, you get similar numbers. And uh, the more securities in your portfolio, the more likely that is to be the case in most circumstances. So, so although... We've talked about that and thought about that at the portfolio security level um, because the mathematics gets so so ugly. We tend to stay with variance and, and in the sense that maybe it's, it's, it's close enough approximation. So you just referenced um, uh, investor expectations as part of uh, a risk model of thinking about what actual risk is. How has your thinking on investor expectations evolved over the years? Um, well, I was 
I'm reminded of, I think it was George Stigler who wrote about firms maximizing profits, et cetera, and said, anytime I visit the manager of a real firm, I have to go back and reread my textbooks. Um, same thing with investors. I, I guess my view is we all know that your neighbor is, a, is, is not a very sophisticated investor. Introspection will tell us that we're not mm-hmm. sophisticated investors, but you've you got to think about security markets. It's not democracy. Not every investor gets the same votes. Mm-hmm. Rich investors have a lot more votes, and they have a lot more resources. They do a lot more research, and they presumably can be more intelligent about trying to estimate risk. Nobody can really estimate risk because you know, it only manifests itself in a, an outcome every day or minute. But you know, I think I would prefer to think of the market as setting prices, taking into account as best it one can information about the uncertain future. Uh, there are some other aspects uh, that we'll probably talk about where you don't even have to think the market's that intelligent, but um, but no, I mean, uh, when you go meet a real investor or introspect on your own investment, you say, how can... But, but there's also, and in, in this book I referenced, the 2007 book, I did a lot of simulations, and it's really fun. You can simulate a world in which you, know, you have a little bit of information, I have a little bit. Mm-hmm. None of us really knows what we're doing, and yet magically the prices end up incorporating all the information. I mean, this is not a new finding, but right. what's fun is to write just a, a, a smallish in, you know, simulation program and see how, how remarkably efficient uh, it's the idea that all of us is smarter than any one of us. Collect, the collective, collective understands what's going on better right. than any single yeah. person. And, and it's remarkable how easy it is to demonstrate the power of that. Let's talk about your most recent project. You started working on something a few years ago uh, that I, I mispronounced, Riz, Rizpap, Rizmat? <laughs> Rizmat is my, Rizmat. my term. Tell, tell us what Rizmat is. <clears throat> well, this is sort of, I, I've sort of moved as uh, we spoke about earlier. I, there was a phase in my life in which I focused on the problems of managers of large institutional mm-hmm. funds, pensions, endowments. And then when I went back to Stanford in the early 90s, 92, I started focusing, 401ks were coming into being. So I started focusing my research on the problems of the individual investor trying to figure out how to accumulate, how to invest in their 401k plans, let's Mm -hmm. call it. Uh, And then followed that up with uh, Financial Engines as a firm devoted again at that point to the individual's accumulation phase. Mm-hmm. And for the last few years, I have been focusing pretty much single-mindedly on the individual's decumulation phase. Meaning how they draw that money down over time. Yeah. I mean, my prototype is Bob and Sue Smith. She's 65. He's 67. They've started Social Security. They've got some savings from rollover IRAs, what have you. And... Uh, what do they do now? Mm-hmm. Uh, do they buy an annuity? If so, what? Do they invest in mutual funds? If so, which? Do they buy some other sophisticated financial product? If they do their own investment, how do they invest? How do they decide how much to spend each year? 
and so this is trying to get my arms around many, at least, of the problems and issues associated with that set of decisions. And uh, so the project involves an e-book, um, which is very large. It would be if it were physical. And a suite of software, and it's all public domain, or will be when it's released. So you're going to give this away to whoever wants to use Precisely. it. Precisely. Yeah, it's, it's under a co- Creative Commons Attribution License number something. Mm-hmm. And Meaning people can use it, they just can't resell it for commercial benefit. They can do anything they want as long as they spell my name right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me about <clears throat> what, what motivated this. How did this come about? You're in your early 80s. Theoretically, you should be golfing or fishing, but you're still deep at work in the theory of, of financial asset pricing and, and management. What made you say three or four years ago, I know I'll create this giant <laughs> project and give it away? Uh, well, I don't golf and I don't fish, but, okay. but I could sure go to more symphonies and operas and sail. I don't have a sailboat anymore. I have a boat, mm-hmm. but go out on the boat more often. Um, well, it, it uh, it's kind of the same thing that motivated my last two phases. Here's a really important problem. Mm-hmm. It's a problem which is appealing because it affects, you know, Ordinary people. Millions of people. Yeah, and uh, and it's really nasty. It's the nastiest, hardest problem I've ever looked at, and I can't say I've found some magic solution because I haven't. You're, you're saying this is, this is harder than capital asset pricing. This is harder than risk analysis. This is the hardest project you've ever seen. It is uh, for two reasons. One, because you can't just say, well, let's assume there is one period left mm-hmm. in the world. <laughs> And, you know, you have to say, well, there, there are many years It's left. continuing rolling yeah. and you never... So you've got a multi-period problem, mm-hmm. which means you have to have a multi-period pricing theory. And you don't know how many periods there are going to be. And you have the actuarial issues to deal mm-hmm. with. You don't know how long people are going to live. Um, and so there are many, many issues. So it's a multi-dimensional problem in some senses where we chose to treat the others as a single dimension. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's it's good and juicy in terms of hard to do, um, and uh, you can, as far as I can see, you can only deal with it with computations. And I write programs for fun. Mm-hmm. I love programming. So um, and it's it's important. So it had it, all the things that you know that turned me on as an economist. So, so what is, you said you're not too far away from completing this. Mm-hmm. This eventually goes on. By the time this broadcasts, it should be online. I would hope so, yeah. It'll be probably first on my website at Stanford. We may move it to a, another site at Stanford. But. So what, was, what did you learn doing this project? What's the takeaway for <laughs> how people should draw down? Because one of the standard mm-hmm. things we hear is, well, you're going to draw 5 to 7% a year for the next 20 years. And that's just such a rough rule of thumb. It's terrible. Yeah. Well, if I may give you a little bit of the the structure, Mm -hmm. Uh, the project has the word matrices in it, and the book has programs and matrix algebra. It's only somebody in a financial engineering program would love this probably. Um, But the idea is think about – a matrix, and by you know, think, use the word table, spreadsheet, call it a spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. 
and every row is a possible scenario for the next 50 years. And there are a bunch of rows. In fact, there are 100,000 rows because there are a lot of things that could happen. Mm-hmm. So you have 100,000 different scenarios, and each column is a year. Okay. So you've got that, let's call it spreadsheet, but you've got a lot of these spreadsheets. So, for example, there's one spreadsheet that's built out of actuarial tables that, that basically says, okay, in this scenario, Bob and Sue, my protagonists, or whomever you want, mm-hmm. you can determine who they are, how old they are. They live, both of them live for the first three years, then Bob dies, Sue lives five more years, then Sue dies, and then what's left goes to the estate. Mm-hmm. So that's the sort of what I call personal states matrix. So you have 100,000 different things that could happen. Variations on that you know, theme. In terms of mortality, let's call it. Then you have another one of those spreadsheets for what happens to the returns on the market portfolio, which in my version is a world bond and stock portfolio, mm-hmm. index fund, low cost. So each of those is this year it did 8%, the next year it did 12%, the next year it lost 40%. So you have 100,000 different stories mm-hmm. for the market. You got another one for inflation, 100,000 different inflation stories. Another one for what happens to TIPS, Treasury Inflation mm-hmm. Protected Securities. Those are my two investments. And then you say, and then you've got Bob and Sue, or you've got one for Social Then the others sort of fill up with incomes. Mm-hmm. So in this scenario, in this year, how much do Bob and Sue get from Social Security? And there's another one. So you've got a whole bunch of those. Another one, how much do they get from... Let's take the strategy you alluded to, uh, so-called 4% rule. Mm -hmm. Put your money in whatever investments. Take out 4% the first year. Every year, keep taking out an amount with the same purchasing power as what you took out initially Mm -hmm. till you either die or run out of money, and good luck to you. (laughs) Um, And I and a couple of my colleagues at Financial Engines have written about that rule. It's it's not the worst possible rule, but it's right up there. It, it, it's it's just a simple rule of thumb that people use, but yeah. clearly suboptimal. It, precisely, but I, you know, do I have? Can I say I have an optimizer that will tell you the optimal rule? No, I do not. Um, nor does anybody else. If you if you were to give me multi-dimensional utility functions, mm-hmm. don't ask. <laughs> Multi-dimension then, utility functions, okay. So, so here is the utility of income for me in next year, and then here's another one in the following year. Then in principle, I might be able to give you an optimal strategy, but nobody does. Nobody has those utility functions. Right. What I can do is infer. I say, well, look, if you choose this strategy or this combination of strategies, then I can tell you, first of all, it's not efficient. You can do better. Mm-hmm. Or if it is efficient, I can say, well, you're acting as if these were your utility functions. Mm-hmm. And you could perhaps look at those and work backwards and, and extrapolate. Right. But so let, let me make sure I understand what we have. So you have a variety of scenarios of longevity and mortality and all the variations there too. Various market returns, various inflation ref- t- returns, various tips returns. And you have hundreds, thousands of each of these. And now you combine all these and you end up, aside from the extraordinary number crunching, with a huge assortment of 
possible outcomes for possible scenarios and no, almost but, like a, a an exponential Monte Carlo simulation. It is it is Monte Carlo. I don't like use that term. Uh, and so so what's the takeaway of that okay. for the investor? Okay. First of all, let me say, if I were teaching, I wish you would would be in my class <laughs> because you know that's that's that you're a quick learner. Uh, but we knew that you um, you happen to. I'm familiar with your entire body of work. Uh, so you are. And it is what you're describing. I had a few moments to think about well, beforehand. So when we discussed this previously, so yeah. uh, as much as I appreciate okay, that as a compliment, I, 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 the, it, it's on you, not me. The, the, yeah. the, um, the intellectual firepower is on that <laughs> well, side of the table. Well, we won't, we, we'll, we'll argue offline. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, there's a whole series of analytic routines which you can apply once you've done this for a particular strategy or set of strategies. You mm -hmm. can add them together. And so, for example, I've talked about multidimensional probability distribution. What's the range of things that I could incomes I could get next year? What's the range the following year? Well, there are at least two ways to show that. One is you show one distribution, and I have a particular pet way to show it that I think individuals can relate to better. And then you it's an animated graph. You show one, and then mm -hmm. the next comes up, and then the next. And another way is what's called an income map, where you're sort of like looking down from the sky on a, on a terrain. Three-dimensional Three topographic. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I have a bunch of anal analytic tools. And in the software, you can just say, well, let's try this one with that and that and that. And you can say, well, let's look at what happens if they're both alive separately from what happens if one's alive. Because mm -hmm. with insurance annuities, you have different payouts. With Social Security, you have different payouts. So you can, you can do diagnostics. Uh, you can do, as I say, infer, well, this would be optimal for somebody with a utility function like this. Or mm -hmm. this is suboptimal. You can get the same probability distributions cheaper if you do it more efficiently, so I can diagnose that. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so this sounds very sophisticated and complex. I hope so. On <laughs> well, sophisticated, yes. Complex, unfortunately, on, yes. On the website, is this going to be easy for the average person or no. or advisor to plug into this and say, "Here's how I can figure out what I should be drawing down each year"? I I don't think so. No. Um, what I'm hoping. I mentioned financial engineers. Mm -hmm. There are programs, and there are a lot of them, typically master's programs, sometimes in engineering or math or sometimes economics, sometimes business schools, to, for financial engineers, though. And these people, for example, you know, this may sound, you mentioned something that, about runtime or you have mm -hmm. runtime on one of these really complex analyses with all these scenarios can be under a minute. Mm -hmm. Sometimes well under a minute, because it's programmed in a language which is designed for matrix operations, MATLAB from MathWorks. And it turns out in almost all of these programs, most of the students on their resumes say they know MATLAB. So, mm -hmm. so the programming aspect isn't going to frighten them. And the majority of them, as far as I can tell with the breakdown, the majority of graduates of those programs go into, you, you guessed it, Wall Street creating mm -hmm. derivatives. Not a single one that I could find in the summary went into working with a financial advisor who's working with retirees or 
near mm-hmm. retirees. But I would hope that this would be in some sort of electives in those programs and or that good technical people would be able to go through my material, go through the programs, learn how to use them, and then provide the back office for, say, a a financial advisor. And that's the reason I was meeting with this uh, person yesterday. Uh, She's a single person and she doesn't advise any retirees, so it wouldn't work. But But, I'm trying to find, and I have a friend who does advise retirees, and I'm trying to see if I can get him to incorporate that in his practice. So, But it sounds like the way you've built this, you want universities and graduate level programs. I know Columbia has a um, school of financial engineering mm-hmm. within yeah, their they graduate do. program. They do. Emmanuel um, Dermin runs it. Yeah. You want you want these folks to build upon what you've done and I would be like, able... I would like there to be an elective on retirement income. Huh. And, and, and there currently isn't. There's no such... Um, I have not done an exhaustive survey, but I'm willing to bet there is not. Because it, it sounds like... I mean, the, there may be one on accumulation, but no well, decumulation. It, it sounds like it's the sort of problem that's ready-made for somebody's oh, oh, PhD oh. dissertation. Or is well, it too be, complex for that? Well, I'm not sure, you know, every your standards for a PhD dissertation, I'm not sure that there would be a lot new... I mean, you can certainly propose new. I mean, I in this, uh, I have techniques that nobody's ever used. I have constructs that nobody's ever implemented. So mm-hmm. there are things in there that that could give rise to new financial products and investment and insurance products. Um, so I don't know about a PhD dissertation. I'm thinking more uh, MS, MA, mm-hmm. financial engineering level. Uh, it's certainly not MBA level material. And people will be able to find this at stanford.edu slash... It'll be originally uh, my website. Uh, if you just go online and say WF Sharp or something, you'll find it. Mm-hmm. And um, and then as I say, we may, may it may get a website of its own at Stanford. What could your future hold? More than you think. Because at Merrill Lynch, we work with you to create a strategy built around your priorities. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC. Um, let's talk about financial engines for a moment. A prior guest was Jeff Magiancalda. He was the CEO. You were the chairman from 1996 to 2003 and the co-founder uh, financial engines are one of those companies that the average person walking down the street has probably never heard of. But it's a publicly traded company. I think they manage about 120 or 140 billion dollars these days. Tell us about financial engines and how the idea came about. Well, this is you know everybody has a founding story, and <clears throat> they obviously get better as they're told more often. I thank you so much for saying that because my wife gives me grief all the time. Yeah. How come your stories don't sound anything like they? That's honey. It's called editing. It gets better <laughs> yeah, yeah, over right. time. That's yeah. it's it's you're working on your. So so. <laughs> I'll try to I'll try to give it to you uh, as I believe it happened. Uh, I had as I, I mentioned earlier, I had a phase when I had a f- research slash consulting firm mm-hmm. trying to help people managing large pension and endowment funds. And after I went back to teaching full-time, I decided that 401ks were, for good or ill, the wave of the future, and there were a whole lot of people who needed help. 
And this is the ERISA laws passed in 74 or so. Right. When, when were you coming to the realization that, hey, these 401k things are problematic for so many people? Probably much, pretty much in the early 90s. And mm-hmm. I went back to Stanford in 92. So I had time to work on anything I wanted to mm-hmm. in, in terms of my research. So I, I focused my research on that problem. And I was writing pieces. I had an early... Um, internet account back before most people knew what it was. Mm-hmm. And I was writing little programs to put on the internet for people to use. And uh, a friend of mine, Joe Grunfest, a professor at the law school at Stanford, said, let's have coffee. I've got an idea. So we did. And he said, you know, you're not going to affect enough people with this work. We need to start a firm. And and I said, been there, done that. Right. Uh, no, thanks very much. Said, well, yeah tell you what, let's just at least talk to my friend Craig Johnson. And Craig had a firm that came, he came out of the legal side, but they had developed a practice specializing in helping people bring ideas to fruition via startups, Mm -hmm. uh, in particular academic ideas. And so Craig and Joe and I talked about, well, let's see if we can't set up a firm to provide financial advice two people in 401k plans through their employer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was very much accumulation phase, to use the term I've used before. And uh, more or less, the rest is history. Uh, you mentioned Jeff Magincalda. Joe had had some contact with Jeff and said, I think Jeff would be great to lead this effort. And uh, so we talked to Jeff. And I remember, I think it was Craig, said, well, Jeff, I hope you understand that in a year we might replace you. You know, <laughs> that's the way these things happen. And Jeff said, oh, you know, I can take that chance. So we started with Jeff. And then Craig uh, brought in part-time really experienced CFO, people, head of engineering, mm-hmm. to help us get started and to help us find people to hire Jeff went out beating the bushes to get venture capital. Um, I went along on one or two of those presentations, decided it was too brutal for me. <laughs> but And so that's that's how it all came about. And now financial engine, so they eventually pivot towards managing on an institutional basis. And so they're the um, provider of record for various companies, substantial companies. Uh, and it's fairly low cost, and it's fairly well structured indexes, primarily for corporate four hundred one k plans. And, uh, let me say first, I've been retired from the firm for quite a while, right? So I don't really know much about what they're doing now. Um, but yeah, basically, we actually went through, I think, depending on how you count, four or five business plans, mm-hmm. um, and there was a. We at one point were on the AOL side. We were going to do right. a direct to, to retail, to call it. To a lot of work. B2C and all the rest of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we settled down providing advice to all the employees in a firm once the mm-hmm. firm signed up and then providing management of accounts to a subset of the employees mm-hmm. who wanted that and Certainly my goal, uh, and I think that of almost everybody in the firm uh, from the start, and I hope still, 
is to do it as at low enough cost to actually you know keep bread on the table mm-hmm. and um, maybe a little more than bread and um, well, it's worked out well because they've they've accumulated a substantial amount of clients have. and assets, and they people have. generally seem to be happy with. Uh, and and it, you know we we try to bring to bear the whole idea was was what I'd done at my former incarnations, trying to bring financial economics, let's call it broadly, to bear on that problem. You know what we knew, what we thought we knew about markets index funds being very attractive investments, et cetera, trying to help the accumulator, let's call it, get some sense of the risk-return trade-offs in terms of if we do this portfolio, then the range of things that happen in terms of the amount of money we'd have to buy an annuity, let's say. Mm -hmm. As an example, at retirement is this. If we do that, it's that. And trying to give them a chance to experiment and find something that makes sense for their situation. Mm-hmm. And, and and I we did a lot of, over the years, certainly I was involved, the firm did a lot of research, and some of my early work on the decumulation phase mm-hmm. was done with uh, Jason Scott and John Watson, uh, two PhDs uh, in the research at the firm. So you referenced index funds. You worked on the first index funds. Or, or certainly one of the first index. Yeah, funds. I was going to say. So, so given given how the world has changed, tell us a little bit about what you did back then, and then sure. we could fast forward and and talk about whether index funds are going to eat the world. Okay, um, certainly. Um, the um, you know, I was, I was, uh, I'd become friends with Bill Faust at, at Wells Fargo investment advisors, um, and he had talked to my class, uh, and I had, of course, been pushing the idea of index funds or something equivalent, and I had a call out of the blue from a young man who had just finished an MBA program at Chicago, mm-hmm. University of Chicago, and said, well, look, you know, uh, I, I think I've got this right. My, my dad own, run, owns, runs Samsonite, luggage company, mm-hmm. and... They have to find a manager for the pension fund, I believe it was. And I learned about the capital asset pricing and all and all, and it seemed to me that it made sense to just put this in the market somehow. And he said, do you know anybody who can do that? And I said, well, so I put him in touch with Bill Faust. At Wells Fargo. At Wells Fargo. And they had come up originally with a scheme in which they had maybe 500 stocks, but they were equal weighted, mm-hmm. not in market cap weights, mm-hmm. which had I known about it, I would have told them instantly it was a really dumb idea. But why do, you, why do you say that? That's interesting. Well, because in the first place, it's not representative of the market. It's not consistent with the capital asset pricing right. model. It involves all kinds of turnover to try to balance everything back. Sure. Um, and, uh, As opposed just, to doing an annual yeah. or semi-annual rebalance. Yeah, or not, well, with a market-based portfolio, you only rebalance for new issues and, mm-hmm. and things of that sort. So, um, you know, if it's broad enough. So, fortunately, that idea, they, somebody at Wells Fargo figured that out. And so I believe that was their first implementation. Now, you mentioned the first. There was work going on at a bank in Chicago. I think mm-hmm. Jack Trainer was involved in that. And um, 
It was also a venture that I was supposed to be on the board of. Uh, the Teamsters Union wanted to do an index fund, and we were going to establish really? an inst. But that fell through for reasons having to do with the Teamsters Union in mm-hmm. San Francisco. So, um, so I think Wells was, if not the first, certainly one of the very first mm-hmm. institutional index funds. Jack Bogle, of course, came along on the on the well, I would call it personal side rather than institutional. Mm-hmm. It was a mutual at, fund at the time, yeah. right? I but it, it was certainly an idea that was you know, was in the in the ether because of the academic work. Mm-hmm. And so what did you do with uh, Wells Fargo? Did you help them put that together or um, was it just... And by the way, who yeah. was the PhD from Chicago with Samsonite? Do you remember the name? He was actually an MBA and I MBA. don't remember his name and okay. I apologize for that. Could have been Samsonite. I don't know. I've, <laughs> I've heard, but I've heard uh, the name Samsonite yeah. from other people telling the story and I don't remember if it was David Booth or someone else. Oh, but, no, the, the, the person who called me was actually the son, I believe, of right. the owner, founder... Mm-hmm. Of Samsonite, uh, where he whose class he had taken, I don't know. Mm-hmm. At Chicago, could have been Gene Fama, but mm-hmm. um, but in any event, um, I'm sorry. Go back to the question we were. Oh, on. so so aside from making the introduction to Wells Fargo, what what else was your role in the development of that initial index fund? Moving them towards market cap weighting, is that one of the contributions you had, or well, did I, they find it on their own? I, well, they, they, I think, found that in that particular instance. I don't believe I was consulting with them then. Mm-hmm. I did consult subsequently for quite a while, and uh, we did all sorts of things. I remember um, we developed a yield tilt fund. And there's an argument that could be made, and I made it in my textbook, and uh, my colleague, Bob Litzenberger, and... Krishna Ramaswamy, then one of our PhD students, uh, did quite a bit of work on this. That, you know, if you have differential taxation of dividends and gains, mm-hmm. as we did, and at the time the differential was big, um, then you can imagine a sort of a sorting out where it pays individuals to and non taxable entities to tilt away from market proportions towards higher yield. Mm-hmm. Because you don't pay taxes, and they're priced presumably to reflect their inferior tax position, mm-hmm. and for people who pay taxes to tilt in the other direction. So you can make that argument, and there were academic papers, and then papers from Bert Miller and Myron Schultz saying that's not true, or the evidence doesn't support it. Any event, so we brought to market this yield tilt fund. It was an institutional fund that had a dividend tilt, if you will. Because of the tax differential, yeah, that was it was a, it was an equilibrium argument in a society with differential taxation. So, so really, do I get to credit you for creating smart beta before anybody no, no, else had no, a no, name no. on that? No, we'll talk about that separately. <laughs> but, but I, I will tell you, the dividend tilt came out, and high yield stocks just relative to other stocks just went into a tailspin. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was one of those periods. When call them value, we'd call them value stocks now, mm-hmm. maybe, but they just got creamed by growth stocks for whatever reason. And the client, we didn't have many clients, and the clients we had sort of started departing. Mm-hmm. Finally, somebody turned out the light when they closed the door, and the yield tilt ton fund is it. did not last very long. Um, 
But I suppose that was one of the first institutional, quote, value funds. So, um, so what year is this? Are we talking 70s or 80s? Uh, we're talking, I, I think, I'm guessing 80s, but don't, early 80s, but don't hold me to that. So at that point, technology was yeah, starting to really yeah, pick I, up and yeah. nobody really wanted yeah. to look at, at value. Yeah, I, I actually, some while ago for some other reason, I, I looked that up and I couldn't find any traces of it on the internet. So it was buried. But do you want to talk smart Veda? Sure. Let, let's let's <laughs> talk about the idea of creating indices by using methodologies other than market capitalization. Okay, well, first, uh, I think I've been I'm in print somewhere from saying this in public. The term smart beta makes me sick. Really? I mean, beta is beta. Uh, it's we've defined it in finance for decades as a measure of the extent to which. Stock or something moves with the market, period. Mm -hmm. That's the definition. Whether it's smart or dumb is irrelevant. Yeah. Now, now, what all that is is what we've known about and written about for years called factor tilts. Mm -hmm. So you have a multi-factor model of Fama French and everything, yeah, small yeah. cap value, exactly. momentum, quality, yeah. blah, blah, blah. So there's a factor model and you tilt. You hold more exposure to yield, let's say, or to value than to growth. You mm -hmm. hold more exposure to small relative to large. And so all of those arguments say, you know, there are two classes of argument for those strategies. One is the market screws up, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, there are dumb investors who think growth stocks are so wonderful they overprice them. Mm -hmm. And there are smart investors who know that and underweight those growth stocks. Mm -hmm. And then there are, there are, there's myself and my friends who are in the middle, you know, and uh, meaning a balanced portfolio. They just buy it all, right? Yeah, you know, that the market doesn't screw up, and if it does, you'll never figure out how. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so basically, that argument, and this gets to a, a very simple argument I wrote about years ago. Um, if you take all the people who own shares in the U.S. market, let's say. Mm -hmm put them in one room, and you say, here are the indexers, broad-based market index. You know, before costs, the market, if the market does 10%, all, every one of them will do 10%. Mm -hmm. The rest of the room, the active managers, I don't care if they're smart beta, yield tilt, value, you know, whatever. Some of them will do better, some of them will do it worse. It has to be a zero-sum for has, everybody. They have to earn before costs the same mm -hmm. that the other guys do and after costs, they're going to earn less. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that some of them may not routinely do better than the indexers, mm -hmm. but if so, somebody's routinely doing worse. So there's, you know, that, that story, there's smart, that's the d smart beta. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, sort of dumb, mm -hmm. that's we indexers. And then there's the really dumb, <laughs> you know, who are the people on the other side of the trades with the smart beta people. And, of course, one presumes eventually... The dumb, really dumb people will say, I think maybe I'll buy an index fund and then the game's over for smart people. Right. But, you know, those factors, yes, what do we know? <clears throat> we know that there are extended periods when value beats growth. Mm -hmm. And there are extended periods when growth beats value. Um, and if you are prescient and can tell which, which is coming, then tilt away and have a good time and you'll be, you'll be very wealthy. There's very little evidence that people can tell in advance what's coming next. Right. And over time, it's pretty much averages out. 
Um, and But we've got a lot of data. We've got really fast computers. We've got a lot of smart people. We've got a lot of good marketing people. So you're going to be hearing about this. And uh, my friend Bill Faust that I mentioned earlier once said he never met a back test he didn't like. Sure. <laughs> you know, somebody will come along. If we had just done this the last 10 years, you mm-hmm. would be so rich. Right. Yeah. So Someone once, uh, I don't know who, who it was, described it as smart marketing yes, instead yeah, of smart beta. Yeah. So, and now, I, there, I might have just one caveat. Mm-hmm. There's a very subtle argument, which uh, a friend of mine, I, I won't bother you with his name, he's an academic who works in the industry now, has made that my arithmetic argument, which I referenced, which was arithmetic of active management, was the title of the piece. Um, well, but we smart institutions know when to buy a new issue. You know, there are issues coming and going. Mm-hmm. Bond, you know, repurchases, expirations of bonds, maturation, what have you. And some of us active managers can play that game and other inve- indexers can't do it. So, yeah, maybe, but... And that's the claim for how they manage to outperform? Yeah, yeah. And, there's, and, there's, and there's another argument that you sometimes hear. Well, the... Smart active managers do better than the market, and yes, somebody has to be doing worse, and it's the dumb individual investors. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yet, when we look at the the league tables for how well active mutual fund managers have done in a good year, twenty, thirty, forty percent of them beat their benchmark. But in most the, years, and it's not the same twenty. And or 30%. right, it's always somebody yeah. different from year yeah. to year. There are. The people who, wait a minute, I know about Warren Buffett and I know about, you hear about the outliers, but they're Mm. outliers and the vast majority, uh, Vanguard has done a ton of studies. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. You know, if I bet, you know this, if I bet with you on a coin flip Mm -hmm. and I always call heads, there'll be some periods of 10 10 in a row. I won't win them all, but I'll win more than half. Right, and, and be that's some when period, you go yeah, open a hedge that's fund. Right. That's exactly right. You use that and say, and, yeah, and then when I lose, dollars. I close it and I open a new hedge fund. <laughs> and we know how that works. The, uh, it, it's amazing that the academic literature on this is pretty unambiguous. People can debate mm. around the fringes, mm. but the concept of uh, now there's a whole behavioral side of it, and people. Um, Meyer Statman uh, at Santa Clara talks about people have an expressive need with their portfolio. It's not purely utilitarian. What do I need to do with my? Mm. By the way, his, his... and Mayor's work. I, you know, I, I, I haven't seen him for a while, but he's a very smart guy, and I, I his work is excellent. But... And and his uh, mentor was um, Peter Bernstein. So to bring that back full circle, yeah, who I, you, uh... I didn't realize it was that close. I know they were they were close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so we we mentioned the the consulting with Wells Fargo. You also consulted with Merrill Lynch in the nineteen seventies. These are, are companies that have gone through enormous changes over the past oh, yes. few decades. Are you surprised how, how that side of the business has evolved? These big firms are not what they once were. Uh, how, do you, how do you see that? Well, well, let me differentiate a little. The, the Merrill work with Jack Trainer, Gil Hammer, and others mm-hmm. was <clears throat> we were basically providing services for institutional money managers like pension funds, et cetera. We did the first beta book where you could look up the beta of a stock. Mm. Uh, we did the, some of the first performance measurement and a- analytic performance measurement. So this was Merrill Lynch providing this 
service to large clients of theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was all on the performance measurement, if you will, side. And it's so not what, like today where anyone could log into a Bloomberg terminal and, oh, no, and crunch this number. Everywhere. Back then, it was serious yeah, computer yeah. power in order to do that, yeah. and nobody had you it. You get it on Google, Yahoo, you name <laughs> it. Amazing. Um, and um, and then uh, the Wells work, they were a money manager, so it was index funds and things of that sort. So, mm-hmm. so they're very different gigs, if you will. So let's talk a little bit about the Sharpe ratio, which is something that comes up frequently. I hear that from people all the time. But what's the fund sharp ratio? You've written that the sharp ratio has been misused by a lot of the investing public. So let's start with explain to us exactly what the sharp ratio okay. is. First thing, I'm not as egomaniacal as you might imagine. I called it, and I still think it's a better term, reward to variability ratio. Reward to, to variability. And I'll expand on that. Somebody else, and I, I don't <laughs> really know exactly who it was, started calling it the Sharpe Ratio and the name stuck. So, mm-hmm. so um, Well, it certainly rolls off the yeah. tongue easier than reward to variability well, ratio. And, and I can tell you, my wife's an artist, <clears throat> so she's not deep into finance, let us say. Mm-hmm. And we were watching a sitcom, or no, it's not a sitcom, it's a drama, Billions, which is about oh, sure. hedge fund manager, et cetera, which is sort of my guilty pleasure that... that uh, show and mm-hmm. they're sitting at the table and one of the people at the hedge fund is saying well you know we're losing customers because our sharp ratio is low and my wife said what yes yes <laughs> <laughs> so so any event so i'm glad they didn't say reward to variability um the my claim to fame um <laughs> the uh it, it's kind of the end well let me go back the original context and it parallels some work of jack trainers which mm-hmm. he, jack went in a different direction but the idea was, how do you evaluate ex, an, ex post or anticipate ex ante? But let's talk about ex post, how well you've done. And the idea was, and I won't speak for Jack, my idea was to say, well, the expected return if we're looking forward mm-hmm. or you know, the average return if we're looking backward is, is a measure of goodness. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But there's also the issue, what was the journey like? So we relative, all over the place relative to the, variability, to the volatility variability uh, uh-huh. and and so the idea was what did you get an expected return per unit of risk that you took mm-hmm. or will take if it's forward looking and my original setting was this is for a whole portfolio mm-hmm. and so the idea was you compare your situation with treasury bills, let's call it, mm-hmm. the riskless asset. Right. So in the numerator, the top of the fraction, you put my average return over the treasury bill. Mm-hmm. So how much did I earn over for taking risk? And in the bottom, you put how much risk did I take? Mm-hmm. And the idea is the more return you got, the more reward per unit of variability, the better it was. Mm-hmm. And More reward relative to, to the variability, use, uh, uh, yeah. the risk assumed, and and you know, and, and so we'll talk about another issue with it, but just on the face of it, if you had to choose one number to evaluate some an investment mm-hmm. prospectively or, you know, after the fact, um, retrospectively, then you know it's not a bad number. That's a pretty good number. But we've it's... got computers now. We don't need to restrict ourselves to one input X number. Mm-hmm. Um, so so then you go to, well, what if this is not my whole portfolio but a piece of it? Mm-hmm. If it's one fund and I've got 20 or if it's one investment manager 
my pension fund, I've got 100. Mm -hmm. And this is not the right measure for that. Uh, so, 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 so how you, do people, how are people misusing it? Well, so, so let me just finish that thought. So what you can do is come up with a benchmark. So this is a growth manager. I'll get a growth index fund as a benchmark. And in the numerator, I'll put, on average, how did this fund do minus how the index fund did. Mm -hmm. And in the bottom, I'll put the variability between the two. You know, what's the variability of the difference? Okay. But again, so it. that's another measure. Nobody's ever kind of... So that's alpha over yes, the over, differential over diff versus over, beta. Over residual risk, let's mm -hmm. call it. Yeah, something like that. And again, there are variations on that theme. Nobody's ever given a name to those kinds of measures. But again, but, but the only case in which for a single manager mm -hmm. in a multi-managed portfolio, the sharp ratio may be applicable is in a hedge fund that has zero beta. If it has mm -hmm. zero beta. Now, the other measure which Jack Trainer used was the same in the numerator, but the denominator had beta. Okay. As opposed Just to straight beta. As opposed to total risk. So it, it mm -hmm. had in effect the part of the risk that's due to the market. And and there are some arguments in terms of capital asset pricing that that can be helpful. Mm -hmm. But in terms of just you say, look, here's my whole portfolio. In the last twenty years, I averaged X percent and the standard deviation was Y and the Treasury bill was Y Z, you know, what do you think? And and I can compare that, say, with investing in, say, a total stock market fund, mm -hmm. if, if, if that's your comparison. Sure. And say, which sharp ratio is higher? So how are people abusing the ratio? Well, I, let, me count, let me count the ways. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I always see it in hedge funds. I always see it yeah. in back tests. I always see it. Uh, in fact, there are some people who well, list in hedge it. Funds, in hedge funds, because... If they're really truly hedged, hundred percent hedged, it almost may not none be, are. Of course, none are. Yeah, most of them have some beta relative to stocks and some mm -hmm. beta relative to bonds. So you need to do a little regression analysis and do something more sophisticated. So the sharp ratio just oversimplifies what the risk of a hedge fund, an unhedged hedge fund, actually is. Yes, hmm. it's 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 amazing because of all the metrics we see, it's the one that. It seems to be the first question people ask. Well, it's easy. Ask. I mean, you know, it's it's easy, and mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> you know, it's not without information <clears throat> because it has a good thing in the numerator and has a bad thing in the denominator. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's just not as sophisticated as it should be in a lot of applications. So, so given all of that, how should the average investor think about risk-adjusted returns? Um, maybe not think about it. Oh, really? <laughs> Do, well, do we do we do you are you well, suggesting we overemphasize risk adjusted returns? Well, yeah, I think the average investor should hold broad, very broad based index funds to mm -hmm. begin with, and you should think about both retrospectively and prospectively what, on average, you might get from this or did get, mm -hmm. and how much variation there was, because that tells you something about how bad it could be the two together, mm -hmm. um, and so for. That kind of a strategy of sharp ratio is not irrelevant. It's worth looking at, but don't, you know, don't break it down into pieces. Just take the whole thing. Hmm. Quite, you, quite fascinating. I mean, if my if you want to know what, you know, we mentioned uh, my current work, 
um, my ideal portfolio, risky portfolio, mm-hmm. for an individual a retiree, certainly, um, who isn't desirous of taking a whole lot of risk, mm-hmm. is a portfolio of maybe four different index funds, U.S., non-U.S., bonds and stocks, mm-hmm. in more or less market cap proportions, a global bond stock portfolio. So now that's interesting you mentioned in market cap proportions because there are so many, uh, I, I want to make sure I understand you, you correctly, there are so many more bonds. The bond market is so much bigger than the stock market. Well, y- yes and no. If you look worldwide, uh-huh. uh, it's, I, I don't have the current figures. I, I should have them. Um, but it's somewhere around 55% bonds, say. Mm-hmm. And, um, so that would be thought of as a fairly risk-averse portfolio. Yeah, well, again, uh, as, as I mentioned, I, I, I'm focusing on retirees. Mm-hmm. And very few retirees seem to have the stomach for much more risk than that. Mm-hmm. And then I would mix that for those who want less risk with my preferred vehicle would be tips mm-hmm. because... You know, if inflation, inflation is a real up, danger for a right. retiree. That's the biggest risk so, is that. So that's, they have two, two investments, one of which may require, one of which, the, the world bond stock portfolio, I continue to badger my friends at some of the index fund companies to create a single fund so I don't have to do it with four different index so, funds. So when you're looking world stock, you're doing emerging market, developed ex-US, and then yeah. what else? Well, that gets into the into the nuances of, of indexing and prices mm-hmm. and such. But, yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd certainly, I mean, the funds that I happen to use are Vanguard funds. Mm-hmm. And we can't and, get Jack Bogle or Bill McNabb to create an index for you? I haven't, I haven't seen Jack or, or Bill for a while, but I've been dealing with some of the others, mm-hmm. including uh, one of our former Ph.D. students. And, um, you know, they all say, yeah, that's a good idea. But I think one of the counterarguments is, well, you can do it, and you do do it, but... But it's a pain. It takes it takes three funds instead of it takes four of, actually four funds. Yeah. So we we talked earlier about uh, the ERISA laws and the rise of four hundred one k. Tell us your perspective on how things have evolved from defined benefits and pensions to defined contributions and self directed retirement funds. Well, it's when when that trend first started. I mean, as as you know well, and many do. 401k was never intended to be your main retirement vehicle. It was supposed to be a supplement. A supplement, precisely. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so, for good or bad reasons, we we moved in the private sector. Now, in the public sector, we still have a preponderance, although it's changing slowly, of defined benefit, and that's an area which I've done some work also over the years, and and involved with a project that's working on it to this day at Stanford, and that's a really serious problem of its own, but let's deal with the private world. Um, It's, I mean, freedom's great. It's wonderful. You can decide how much to save. You can decide how to invest it. When you retire, you can decide what to do with the money, whether to invest it, annuitize it. I mean, you've got this world of choice now constrained. When you're retired, you're not constrained at all, generally. When you're working, you're constrained by the menu that your employer offers you. But um, but it's I mean the good news is you got you can choose lots of different things. The bad news is you can choose lots of different things. Right. And I think it's incumbent upon employers to at least 
try to limit your choice set within the 401k or 403b plan to sensible investments and to provide some sort of assistance so that you to help you make informed choices now that's self-serving i'm not involved with the financial engines anymore but um but it, it's 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 very frightening and i think we have evidence just as we have evidence in the public sector that uh, employers in the public sector are not sufficiently funding mm-hmm. their defined benefit plans. We have evidence that many, many individuals are not sufficiently funding their 401k, 403b plans. Some don't even have access to any. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it's sort of hard to know what people are doing with that money when they retire, but uh, my guess is it's not a pretty picture. No, uh, to say the least. Um uh, you mentioned pension funds. I want to run a pet theory by you that I that I have. A lot of pension funds have, over the past decade or two, really ramped up their exposure to hedge funds. And the only thesis, the only explanation I could find, is well, we have this expected return for bonds, and we have that expected return for stocks. But look, our expected return for hedge funds is so much greater. How, is you, that remotely? You've got it. And, and as a matter of fact, there's some research out of a group in, in Europe, but, but on U.S. pension funds. Uh, you have this bizarre tail wagging the dog. The way public pension funds work is that the actuary comes up with, quote, an expected rate of return for the fund mm-hmm. and then does calculations using that the assumption that you use that to discount everything you've got. Including the contributions the state has to make to... Well, no, I'm, I'm talking about just, yeah, yes, including contributions, but future contributions. But if, if you just ask, well, what's, what are the assets worth? Well, we know that. We have market values. What are the liabilities worth? I have promised Joe and the police force that in five years, he'll retire and he'll get X Mm-hmm. dollars per month till he dies. What's that worth? Well, any economist would say, well, you get the actuarial tables, you figure out life expectancy, and then you discount those payments at the treasury rate. Mm-hmm. You claim you're going to make them, they're riskless, they're bonds, and right. they should be valued like bonds. No! The state actuaries take those claims, those payments, mm-hmm. discount them at the expected return of the fund. Which, which seven and seems, a half percent or so, which, which is idiotic. It seems to be made up. It's just it, so. It who is. came up with and, that and, number? Okay, well, but I want to go. I want to complete the thought to your okay. point. Okay. So, you know, the politicians, if you will, and maybe the unions, and maybe the people in the office of the chief actuary and the people running the pension fund are heavily pressured to make those liabilities values as small as possible so that they look good relative to the value of the assets. They value the assets at market, so Mm -hmm. that's fine. But the value of the liabilities. So let's see. If we increase our expected return, we can discount those promised payments at a higher rate, and their present value will be lower, and our funding will be better. And Thereby reducing how much money the state has uh, to kick in. And Precisely so. So, and that's exactly, and you raised the point, so uh, we really need to get that expected return up. How can we do it? Well, private equity, hedge funds, et cetera, 
we can take what we expect from the stock market and add 300 basis points, 3% more. Because after all, they're, they're golden instruments. And that'll get our expected return up. And as I mentioned, there's a study, I'm blocking now on the authors, where they very carefully looked at pension funds mm-hmm. in great detail. And you can see it. You can see them. They're putting more money in those asset classes, not probably because they think they're wonderful, or maybe they don't even think they can get 300 basis points more than stocks, Mm net-net, but because that will enable them to cook the books and make the situation look even better than it does now, which is a lot better than it really is. And may I put a a plug in? Uh, There's a project at Stanford uh, called Mm -hmm. pensiontracker.org where we go through this process for all the major pension funds in the country. Really? And and city pension and county pension Pensiontracker.org. I got a new and website we, to play And we with. compute not only, quote, actuarial values, uh-huh. but also what we call market values, where we try to correct for this. So, so the United States pension plans, public pension plans, is A, built on an assumption that's false, tweaked to show better expected returns than anybody should reasonably expect. Well, I, I won't go that far, but to show, I mean, you know, maybe you should. I'll go that you far. Go I'm, that go far, that far. Yeah. I'm sitting here with Will Sharp, uh, Nobel laureate and inventor of Capham and the Sharp Ratio, and you've essentially made a case for fraud. These guys are defrauding the public and the taxpayer. I, I'm going to draw that conclusion. Okay. It's a, not your conclusion. A, I'm not a lawyer, okay. so I'm not going to talk about fraud. And B, I'm sure there are plenty of people within these organizations, let's say the state pension funds, mm-hmm. who honestly believe that you really should plan to, on average, get a bonus of 300 basis points net from hedge funds and private equity. You know, if you, if, I don't happen to be among them. If this was the 1990s, I could say, hey, there have been a lot of funds doing really well, and maybe you can make a good faith argument for that. But we have two decades of significant, especially as $3 trillion have flown into hedge funds from a tiny percentage of that, uh, and the number of hedge funds have scaled up 10x, maybe at one point in time when there were a small number of hedge funds managing a small amount of money, that alpha was legitimate. But at this point, that's just a fantasy. Well, you know, there, there have been very, very careful academic studies it's hard to do. It's hard to get the data. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but <clears throat> my read, at least of some of the more recent ones, is that if you can get in the top X percent, and I say this given the fact we're sitting in the offices of, probably mm-hmm. of one of these. One of the top X uh, percent, uh, for sure. Yeah. And if you can get in, then maybe you can get an edge. Probably not 300 basis points, but mm-hmm. an edge. Um, but to be perfectly frank, the public pension funds can't get in a lot of these because they don't want the the disclosures. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, you know, but again, I'm not. In, I I consulted with CalPERS for many many years on risk analysis and things, uh-huh. performance analysis, and there are very good people in in a lot of these organizations, and some of them I'm sure believe that that's true, but I don't believe it's true, and I think it's an unfortunate thing. And I think that the problem, and you can look at the statistics on our on our sur- websites, but um, it's 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 crisis proportions. And and footnote to Calpers: two years ago, they tossed out all their hedge funds and moved closer to a a 
more Bill Sharp type of investing strategy. They did. They so did. and not that it was a lot of money. It was I, I want to say two or four billion dollars. Yeah, it's one a few billion here, a billion there. Uh, After a while, it, it's real money. It starts to yeah. add up. Well, what are they these days? Two hundred and seventy or three hundred? I'm, I'm not some, current, some ungodly. Yeah, like um, you can numbers. find it on the site. <laughs> so give us that that don't pensiontracker.org. Pensiontracker.org. You know, I could talk to you about this stuff for all for hours and hours. I have my favorite questions I want to get to. Before I get to them, I have to ask you about long-term capital management. Since we're, we're talking about hedge funds, uh, you got sort of an interesting perspective on what happened there. Tell us about it. Uh, let me tell you a pre-story. I worked with a, with a private family um, that actually was one of the early investors in long-term capital. Mm -hmm. And there came a point at which long-term capital said... Uh, and we were talking to Myron Schultz, who was involved there. Mm -hmm. um, well, we're giving you and others all your money back. And we said, we don't want our money back. We've made a lot of money. Mm -hmm. You've been doing a great job, et cetera. And he said, no, I'm sorry, but we're cutting back on clients we're men, et cetera. So reluctantly, we took our money back, and then everything broke loose. Um, Long-term capital was, uh, you know, it's very hard to tell from the outside. But I, I take it, just the simple version is, that leverage can make you a lot of money and it can lose you a lot of money. <laughs> and there are sophisticated and unsophisticated ways of getting leverage, but, but they all have the same. If you're really smart, they can make you a lot of money, and it's a slightly more probable that they will lose you a lot of money. And they were running but, 100x or so? Is that about uh, Different people have computed different numbers, but... Mm -hmm. I've heard 30 anyway, but it was way up there. Mm -hmm. And it was done in very convoluted, sophisticated ways. It wasn't just a matter of how much money have you borrowed from the bank. So uh. they had all sorts of complex positions. And I'll tell you, you know, both the academics there and the practitioners, and I've known some of each, were about as smart as you can get. Mm -hmm. And uh, why it happened, who knows, but um, it certainly... Uh, Certainly tarnished a lot of a lot of reputations. That, you know, it's funny you mentioned a lot of smart people. That was the title for Lowenstein's book when genius failed. There was a tremendous amount of intellectual capital there, and not enough appreciation for. Um, I, I want to. I keep wanting to call it the sharp ratio, but not enough turn, recognition of the potential risk of of all that leverage. Well, I, I, from what I understand, their risk models were very complicated mm -hmm. and very sophisticated, as you might well imagine. But um, Sometimes simple yeah, is better yeah. than complicated. And, you know, who knows what the motivations of any of the partners or employees might have been, but there are times when, you know, if you think you've got an edge, you take a gamble knowing you might lose. Mm -hmm. And uh, at thirty x, there's not a lot of room for error. That's right, and and so maybe maybe they knew what chance they were taking. I don't know. We have been speaking to Bill Sharp of uh, Stanford University, the capital asset pricing model, the Sharp ratio. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue to talk about all things uh, risk uh, and return related. Uh, check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. 
Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bill, so much for being so generous with your time. This is really endlessly fascinating to My me. My great pleasure. I'm having a good time. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, so let, let's talk about um, some of the standard questions I ask all of my guests, and, and these, are, these are where I really get to learn um, about somebody in ways that perhaps they, uh, the public doesn't necessarily know about them. So what's the most important thing about you and your background that people don't know? Oh, my. That, that's, that's difficult. Um, all right, I'll, since we're talking finance, I'll tell you a financial mm-hmm. story. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I took, I was an economics major, but I took a course, a beginning course in investments from a wonderful person, a man named John Clendenin. Mm-hmm. And it was a very traditional finance course. And I was a junior, I think, and I thought, well, you know, I'm, this is pretty good. And I had $500, which at the time was a lot of money, which I'd saved up. I worked in garages and service stations and such to buy a car. And, and at that time, you could buy a car for $500. Mm-hmm. But I, for various reasons, I, I wasn't going to buy the car for a few months. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll do a little investment. And so I did my securities research, as I was told, mm-hmm. and found a company. I think it was Learner Stores or Learner Brothers or something. Sure. It was a women's clothing store. And they were in new management, expansion to shopping models, whatever. And, of course, not knowing at the time that things of that sort were supposed to be incorporated in the price, I invest, went down to my local Merrill Lynch office and bought $500 worth of Lerner Brothers stores. Well, you know, of course, what happened. In three months, it became $300. Mm-hmm. And so I had to, A, work all summer before I could buy my car. And maybe that was the beginning of my suspicion that markets were efficient, I'm not sure, but it certainly, you know, told me that uh, that a career in investments was, as a practitioner at least, was not for me. So you you've mentioned a bunch of mentors. Tell us who who are who are the people that really mentored your thought process and your career. Well, it, it always comes down to two. I've mentioned in in, in our conversations. Um, J. Fred Weston. Fred Weston mm-hmm. was an economist from Chicago, University of Chicago, in the finance department in the business school. And I was his one of his research assistants as an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I took my PhD, I found I, one of the five fields could be in finance. So even though it was the business school, one of my five fields for my economics PhD was with Fred. And Fred and I were close, and he was a huge influence. And then the other main influence was Armin Alchin, who was a microeconomist, brilliant, quixotic, um, quirky, um, who, from whom I took microeconomics, uh, the beginning of the PhD program. I guess I took it in the MBA program, um, who taught me to think like an economist. and. Mm-hmm. Um, so in many ways, the CAPM, I can trace to those two people. Who else affected your thought process about investing? What, what investors have influenced how you look at the world of, of pricing and, and returns? 
Well, I, I wouldn't say any investors particularly have. Mm-hmm. Uh, Academics? I, I came at from an academic viewpoint, and, and again, um, I was bringing economics into finance, mm-hmm. uh, as was Fred and as were some others, but in very early days. And in a sense, we were bringing uncertainty into economics. Most economic theory was in a world of certainty where you knew when you put these inputs in, you were going to get those outputs out, and the prices were known. So there wasn't a lot. There were early traces of dealing with uncertainty within economic theory, but but only a few. And so I was part of a group, and there were many others, including traditional economists such as Ken Arrow, mm-hmm. Gerard Dubrow, who brought uncertainty to economics. But both traditional academic finance and traditional academic economics were very different. And so, in a sense, it was a matter of finding a home and, and building this whole new idea of financial economics. Bringing the two together. And in particular, financial economic theory. Mm-hmm. Let, let's talk about books. This is the question that listeners ask more than any other. Tell us about some of your favorite books. Um, well, you know, that's a hard question. I, you know, I, I don't really have, I'm not going to say any of my own books because I find it, if anything, painful to reread my okay. own books. I, I recently, uh, some while ago, did a book of readings of my works, quote, mm-hmm. selected works. And, and to do that, I had to read through all of my own work, books and, and papers and such, which I found very painful. Um, I completely understand yeah, the sensation. But, uh, you know, there, there, there are no books. I have books on my shelf that I would never part with, but, but I don't reread them or I rarely what, even look up things. What was the most recent thing you read? Tell us something. Uh, it oh. could be fiction, nonfiction, something for Yesterday pleasure. Yesterday I read uh, the book I'm, I've been reading the last few days or so. is called something like The Decline of Expertise or The Death mm-hmm. of Expertise, perhaps. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's polemic. Uh, but it's challenging and it's thought provoking, mm-hmm. and um, and I you know I like to read um, books. I, I I love computer programming. I I, I think computer science, uh, although I'm not a computer scientist, but is is fascinating. And I I like to think about and read about the potential impact of technology, in particular computer and related technology on everything, cars and professions mm-hmm. and finance and, and what have you. Um, and, and so I, I like to do a little bit of modestly futuristic mm-hmm. uh, and to some extent history of, of the development of computer and technology I, I read. And I read a lot. I'm, you know, I'm a classical music fan and Oh really? Uh, and I I used to play jazz badly. Um, what instrument? Uh, bass. Mm-hmm. That's a- I play piano now from just for myself. I don't uh-huh. pl- I don't play out as we say. But um, and and I'm a you know I'm involved as I with the Carmel Bach Festival. Plug plug. Everybody should Carmel come. Bach Festival. Mm-hmm. When it's when does that take place? Two weeks in the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's July August. July. Mm-hmm. It's it's fantastic. So uh, it's outdoors here? In our 80th year. Well, it's a number of venues. We have mm-hmm. chamber concerts, main concerts. Uh, it's 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 a big deal. 80 years and counting. And uh, professional musicians, professional chorale. It's, 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 a, it's a remarkable uh, occasion. Uh, I'm still stuck 
picturing you as a jazz bassist playing in some smoky club. Well, yeah, it was it was trad jazz, not not nothing nothing after nineteen twenty eight or maybe a little bit into the thirties styles. Okay, uh, so we just celebrated Ella Fitzgerald's hundredth birthday. I, I'd forgotten, and I didn't get her anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I saw Wynton Marsalis uh, oh, yeah. do a a, a a uh the jazz band of Lincoln Center. Did a, uh, oh, I read about that. Yeah, it, it was it was yeah. lovely. It was absolutely. Yeah. It was a series of different vocalists. Yeah. So I'm I'm also, by the way, just an inveterate op- opera buff. Oh, really? I go to every single opera in the movie theaters, mm-hmm. and uh, and so, when I can, live performances. But we don't have live opera in Carmel. Once in a once in a while, we have one. But so you have to either go to San Francisco or Seattle or, or San Jose. Uh huh. Oh, so that's not too far. No, but but I, I, I'm. I'm not going to say on the air, but I really like the opera in the movie theater. <laughs> okay. Uh, that I find that very satisfying. Um, not so much uh, jazz anymore? You still... No, no, no. I, uh... Modern jazz is too uh, progressive. Oh, yeah, and... it's, 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 it's all, you know. So what about, so to me, it's so funny, you said 20s and 30s. I appreciate it. I just, it doesn't turn me on. What about some of the classic jazz of the 50s? To me, classic jazz is 50s and yeah. 60s, so it's... Ornette Coleman and Miles Davis and and yeah, no, Thelonious I, Monk and I sort of I sort of lost interest around the big band era. Mm-hmm. See, I grew up in the tail end of the big band era, um, but and then I I listened, followed, played um, traditional jazz. So big band: Duke Ellington, yeah. Tommy Dorsey, yeah, Glenn Miller, you name it. Okay, yeah. so I love that stuff. But the next. Uh, Jerry Mulliken and Coltrane, and yeah. that was not your bag once it. No, I mean I, I used to go to a little bit of you know some of the clubs in L.A. in that era, mm-hmm. but no, I never got really got hooked on that. There used to be a great jazz scene in San Francisco before my time. Well, there was a good and and when during the revival of trad jazz, mm-hmm. uh, there was a great trad jazz scene in San Francisco. And when I was at Cal, my freshman year, we used to go to a place in Oakland down by the in the industrial district. Um, Turk Murphy, mm-hmm. um, trying to remember his his clarinet player, but but uh, there was some really good, you know, there was a big revival period uh, of trad jazz, just as later there was folk music. I love the folk music era. Mm-hmm. Well, the next but, time you get to New York, we'll have to get you over to Lincoln Center for the their jazz, their big band oh, jazz. Oh, no, yeah, no, that's a fabulous you would love thing. That. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we went over some of the changes. We went over some of the shifts, uh, and and you told us about a time you failed. So I, I don't have to ask that that question. <laughs> oh, there are more, but let's oh, leave well, it at that. Uh, any other anecdotes? You tell oh, wonderful anecdotes. No, let's anecdotes. leave it at that. Um, so let me let me get to my two favorite questions. I ask all of my guests. Uh, if a student or a millennial would come up to you and said, "I'm thinking about a career in either." Um, uh, financial economics or investing, what sort of advice would you give them? Well, I can tell you what I've told our millennial grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> I haven't the foggiest, nor okay. presumably does anybody else, mm-hmm. but you'd better get a really broad education. And I mean really broad because technology, you know, I don't think we've begun to see anything yet. Technology is going to intrude and take out any profession or trade that has any routine nature to it, we know uh, is subject to mechanization, computerization, whatever you want to call it. 
Mm-hmm. So you need real breadth, and you need the ability to think and to be and to learn and the willingness. Uh, I have this little sideline um, for this will be my fifth year. I teach kids in one of the towns near Carmel how to program code. We, how, how old are how old are the kids? Roughly twelve, mm-hmm. and uh, it's been a challenge. Uh, and I'm still experimenting with different different methods. But there's this wonderful language developed over decades at MIT called Scratch mm-hmm. for eight to sixteen year olds, which is a remarkable language. As a matter of fact. I have a blog in which I did a whole retirement income Monte Carlo system, and I wrote it entirely in Scratch just to prove I could. Mm-hmm. It's not fast, but uh, but it's not bad. I had to write all my graphic routines. You can find it. It's something like retirement income scenarios blogspot or something. Mm-hmm. You find it, or it's there's a link on my website. But my view is that kids not necessarily become programmers but to think logically and to begin to get an appreciation of how you can think algorithmically, you can do research or analysis or decision-making analytically, and also to understand what's going on with the things that are probably going to displace you in whatever job you start (laughs) at. Uh, I mean, I have no notion what you know? What is what is university education going to be like in twenty years? Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to even fathom. I mean, I've read again books. You know, there are books about speculating on that, which some of which I've read, and um, you know, the whole idea. I mean, one one author had this uh, argument that I, I think is is very valid. We're beginning to learn something about how people learn, how brains work, mm-hmm. and. His argument was, if you tried to invent the absolute worst way to try to convey information and education to a student, it would be to have somebody stand at the head of the class and talk to them for 50 minutes. Right. And so um, all the ideas of online learning with feedback and constant testing and and branching and all that, I I think they're fascinating and and there's, there's, there's something there. Mm-hmm. So the Socratic yeah. method has something to it because it forces people yeah. to think yeah. on the fly. Yeah, my my son, who's in education, told me when we were talking about different ways I've experimented with my kids in the summer program. He said, y- "You've got to change from being these are these are this is jargon and Ed, Ed apparently from being the sage on the stage mm-hmm. to being the guide by the side." Makes sense. So I went from in the first two years. I taught the course, all right, here, I'm doing this, and now you do that, and you can experiment with some variations. Now, pay attention, we're going to do this, and you're going to do that, uh, which is the way in which you pretty much teach Scratch, uh, to something called Code.org, which is online free material. Bill Gates, Zuckerberg, it's heavily supported, and the student just logs on and starts solving puzzles. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's got feedback. It's 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 very clever. Code.org. And what I found with my kids, I did this last year. Then I, I did ten one hour sessions and it was great for the first and then I would sit and you want help or what are you doing? 
and I only have 12 kids, but, and then it, you know, at about session five, I could have killed them. They were getting really antsy and itchy and bored. And, and so I, I slowly got them to come over to scratch and learn a, a bigger, broader language where you can be more creative. I mean, the, mm-hmm. and, and, um, but the takeaway is the collaborative approach seems to be more effective than just lecturing to them. I'm thinking a mix. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking a mix. And, and I know people who teach that grade level know this. They've been doing it for decades. It's just that I'm, I grew up in an environment where I was up in front talking. Uh-huh. And, yeah, we had interchange. And I did small seminars. But, but still. Um, and the idea of now having every five minutes, you know, here's something test them. If they learn it, they get to go on. If not, they go back and Mm -hmm. you present it a different way until they get it. I mean, the ability of computerized systems to engage in all of that, you just, you cannot ignore that. Hmm. And, and how that's all going to shake out, I don't know, but I'm awfully glad I'm not entering, you know, the academy now. And, and my final and favorite question, what is it that you know about economics or finance or investing today that you wish you knew back in the late 50s, early 60s when you were first setting out? Well, to be perfectly frank, that's an interesting question. I've not thought about that. Um, It's easy to say, well, I should have taken more math than the first course in calculus. I know (laughs) know that. But but I faked my way through well enough. I don't know. I, I mean, uh, it, it's it's been a hell of a ride. I, to say the least. I would not want to have sort of, I mean, it, there's nothing more fun than discovering something you hadn't anticipated. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that is just the best trip ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so so I, I I was lucky enough to have a lot of those experiences. And, and also, you know, teaching. Uh, Teaching can be very rewarding, can be very frustrating and very boring, but when it's rewarding, it's really rewarding. So I, I don't think I'd, I'd choose to do it differently. We have been speaking with William F. Sharp, Nobel laureate, creator of the capital asset pricing model, the Sharp ratio, and other measures of risk. Thank you, Bill, for being so generous with your time. This has been absolutely a delightful uh, couple of hours. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, then look up an inch or down an inch on either Apple, iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com, and you can see any of the other 150 or so such previous conversations. I would be remiss if I did not thank Michael Batnick, my head of research, Taylor Riggs, my booker producer, and again, I have to thank Andreessen Horowitz for hosting us here in their absolutely delightful facilities. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Our world is always moving. So with Merrill Lynch, you can get access to financial guidance online, in person, or through the app. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC.